Welcome to episode 34 of Art Pays Me. Before we get into it, I want to do my shout outs. I ran into my friends uh, Cindy, Cindy and Robbie McGee on the weekend and uh, they told me that they're feeling what I'm doing with the podcast and to keep it up and they're avid listeners. So thank you to you to, to uh, Cindy and Robbie. They're, they're the best. Uh, I met them initially through basketball, I believe, through uh, Full Court 21. Robbie played, and uh, him and I were the two old guys this year, and uh, I think the, the first time I met him, too, in like 2016 and 2017, we were also the old guys in the in the tournament, so uh, shout out to, to Cindy and Robbie, and uh, shout out, you know, shout out to them for their, uh, their clothing brand, uh, Michelle Robert. Also, I want to shout out to Chad Lucas, who also showed the show some love, and, um, you know... It's always great to, to hear the feedback, so thank you very much, folks. On this episode, we have an award-winning television and radio producer from the UK who's made his way to Nova Scotia. Uh, his name is Reese Waters. He's had a diverse uh, creative interest, like when he was coming up, and basically he wasn't sure how he would proceed with his career, and uh, we talked about how watching DVD extras from the movie Evil Dead helped him figure that out. And how, you know, not following artists, I sorry, not following others and exploring your own individual weirdness as a creative can make you a leader in your space. And also, I was featured on Reese's podcast called uh, Podstarter fairly recently. So make sure you search that up and uh, check out the episode. And I got into depth into as to why I podcast and how it's benefited me. And uh, yeah. Let's do it. What up, artist? My name is Dwayne Jones. I'm the creative director and founder of a lifestyle brand called Art Pays Me. This is the Art Pays Me podcast, and I'm passionate about finding ways that people like you and me can make a living for ourselves off of our creativity. And, you know, maybe we can make the world a better place at the same time. Let's get into it. So welcome to our Pays Me podcast, Reese. Thank you very Hi. much for doing this. Yeah, no problem at all. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So I was featured on something you're doing. Is that your podcast or is it like more of a not a podcast? <laughs> well, it's actually um, uh, a podcast called Podstarter where uh, it's all about interviewing interesting people, making interesting podcasts and helping people understand the process and the, the kind of uh, journey is an ups and downs that people go through. It's kind of like a, a learning resource because I've got a company that um, operates as a kind of a podcast consultancy. Uh, I know we interviewed quite a while ago, but we're kind of building a big bank of episodes that we're planning on releasing really soon. So uh, yeah, yeah it, was, it was good to interview. Cool. So what is it that you do outside of that? Um. I, I guess I guess you could loosely call me a filmmaker in the sense of uh, I, I I make most of my income from making films. Uh, at the moment, I'm primarily focused on editing. But um, before I moved to Canada about 18 months ago, I was producing, directing, um, recording location sound, uh, and essentially 
fulfilling multiple roles kind of on a on a on a micro level producing documentary and comedy and sometimes adverts and scripted stuff as well cool so where exactly did you grow up then uh, i grew up in the south wales valley which is um kind of a funny place because it was it's kind of like i call it like a, a slight like a rust belt it, 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 in the sense that it had its heyday. It was a big industrial center, and I grew up the kind of carcass of, of those kind of um, huge coal mine uh, employment, huge um, steel works. They, they, they kind of died off. So it was kind of an unusual place in the sense that um, there was uh, a lot of, a lot still less so, a strong sense of community from those kind of um, heavy industry jobs, but also the kind of heart had been ripped out of the community. Mm. So there was. It was a um, there was a lot of issues with drugs and alcoholism, but also still immense pride and um, a, quite a passionate kind of community focused environment. Um, and I, I kind of I, I, I you know I, I think I had a good childhood growing up there. I was quite I was quite lucky that um, you know I, I was part of a really tight knit community and that there was this kind of heritage there and a real sense of character. Um, but at the same time. Part of me always felt like, um, I suppose you, you sometimes don't feel like you fit in completely because as much as I uh, was part of that community, some of the things like uh, rugby was the main sport and I've never really been into sport. And then um, a lot of the, the kind of the, the trends and things that school friends would have been into, I, I was always on the kind of fringes of that and interested in weird, weird stuff. <laughs> so uh, it was kind of... Uh, it was a good place to have a, a, a base upbringing, but at the same time, I always felt slightly on the fringes of types. Would you f say that being on the fringes and somehow protected you from some of the, the challenges that some of these other people might have endured? Yeah, and like, I, I you know, I, I didn't, we weren't particularly rich or anything when I grew up, but we weren't necessarily poor either in comparison to other people around there where there was a lot of unemployment. Um, you know, we were, I was called posh because my parents had a mortgage <laughs> rather than rent in their home. Right. So, so because they, because they, 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 you know, they, they were in that situation. I was, I was classed as, Hey, you know, you, you, your parents are slowly buying your house over 35 years. You're, you're, you're rich. <laughs> so right. they, you know, it, it was that kind of set. So I kind of, I feel, I feel like, uh, I, I was insulated from, um, some of the more heavy drinking, and the, the more um, the alcoholism that is still quite prevalent today, especially with people my age who were kind of indoctrinated this kind of heavy drinking culture and um, and everything. I think I think because I was always looking for a kind of a, a route out from the way that everybody else was was seeing life in front of them. And maybe maybe I kind of did it by accident. I guess. Mm, yeah, yeah. I always wondered that about myself too, because in some ways I always felt like an outsider. But then a lot of the popular people were kind of getting into things that I didn't really want to get into. So in some ways, I'm, I'm kind of grateful that I, I wasn't accepted in that way. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, like, I was also kind of um, slowly drifting down, like, an academic route. But mm -hmm. I really struggled with... Um, I've always struggled with exams. <laughs> so like, all my family were, um, like my grandfather was a coal miner and he 
started when he was like 14 years old in like the 1930s and uh, he worked like 50 years underground and was determined that none of his children or grandchildren or whatever um, work in, in a coal mine. Mm. Uh, he, he put a lot of pressure on um, everyone to kind of look at academic routes as education as, as a route to kind of having a, a better state of employment. And this was like, you know, to a generation or two before me. Um, so the, in my, within my family, there was this kind of like, you know, you must go down this academic route. Um, and I kind of hit a brick wall when I was like 17 and the exams started getting tougher and I was struggling to kind of take, actually read read and revise and take part and do these things. Uh, and I also kind of found out when I was in university that I had dyslexia, but not particularly severe. It was just um, affected my ability to really concentrate and absorb information um, without, I guess, I can, I can absorb information that interests me. Anything that doesn't interest me, it's, it's a lot tougher. So cramming for exams is impossible. Um, and I, I then got to a point where I realized that I wanted to do art, essentially, rather than study history or law, like my brother was going down that route. And I was just, I, I was kind of bored with those kind of topics and um, started to kind of... Uh, realized that art was kind of more my thing um, and, and kind of uh, stepped away from the more academic classes and, uh, and quit all those courses and then just started doing fine art full time when I was about 18 years old, I think. So this this is a um, like a university that you were at? No. So um, in the UK, you can leave school at 16. Okay. And then what happens is you can either go to some schools will have a what's called a sixth form where you can stay till you're like 18 okay. but if your school doesn't like my school kicked everybody out at 16 we then went to this kind of college which was like a, a pre-university college which was just two years um and i did like a, a a course that would bridge from normal school to like a an art art or creative course in the university it was like a two-year course that would uh, go between them and, and kind of take me on that path really got you Got you. Wow, that's that's pretty similar to me in a lot of ways, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went to Bermuda College, which is basically the same thing, and we finished at seventeen. At that point, anyway, they changed it, but yeah, I finished at seventeen. But I kind of knew by the time I got to Bermuda College that the academic stuff wasn't working for me, uh, so I I dipped right into art right away. Uh, so when you were taking more art classes, was that like illustration or was it just generally speaking, like whatever they kind of had for you? It was a really cool course, actually, because I did ceramics, I did life drawing, I did like painting, draw, uh, all different kinds of drawing. Um, we'd be doing graphic design on um, some of those really old, I can't even remember the name of it, but the the the, the Mac uh, the iMac with a kind of translucent plastic we were working on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then um, I would also be doing photography. We had a we had a, a dark room, which, which obviously doesn't seem to be a thing anymore. But that was quite cool, like you know, taking photos and developing them the old the old way. Uh, we even shot on some Super 8. We made some Super 8 films, and um, it was it was good. It gave me a little taste of of everything, really. Um, and really showed me where my strengths were and my weaknesses were. But mm -hmm. as I was kind of getting towards the end of the course, it was like a pragmatic side of me that was thinking, you know, you're in this kind of 
former mining college <laughs> doing art, you know, all the big stuff's happening in London, you're in this kind of smaller community, you know, who would take me seriously uh, what, as, as an artist, you know, I, would, I, can't, I couldn't even see a, a logical bridge between, you know, the 18, 19 year old me and someone who was actually making a living out of doing what I was doing there. So I, I was kind of working quite hard in my brain and think about, okay, well, I don't want to, I, I want to keep doing this. I want to find a way to, to pursue this. Um, and I, I, I remember staying up late one night and watching um, the film uh, Evil Dead 2 on DVD mm. and loving the film because it was just, you know, weird and dark and, you know, quite creative and fun. But then I watched the DVD extras about how they made it, and it what blew my mind was how it was all kind of thrown together, and you know they had no real money; they just um, borrowed everything. They designed the costumes. They had like family members in the costumes, and I kind of like bit. I got bit by the bug of of realizing that maybe there was uh, uh, not only was there a more reasonable route in terms of uh, getting employment if I started specializing in film but there was something exciting about what you could try and pull off with limited resources and, and what you might be able to do with just thinking creatively with with uh, you know uh, the, the resources in front of you um, and also it was a, I, I, to me uh, so to me it seemed like a way more visible method of being noticed because at the time this was kind of when youtube was just launching and becoming a thing um and i'd been posting videos and stuff on there and this was like this must be about 2006 2007 uh just to show how how early it was in the days of youtube i was the 12th most subscribed comedian on youtube and i only had 200 subscribers <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I was kind of, I was thinking, this is working, you know, I'm building an audience. And, right, exactly. And uh, so it kind of, it was the first time I'd ever really got any, any genuine feedback from an audience as such for the work I'd done. So I buried my head into film then and managed to uh, get, luckily, like there's a really respected uh, it doesn't even exist anymore, but there was a really respected documentary course um, in Newport University in South Wales that had quite a lineage back to the 60s and quite a few respected um, documentary photographers and documentary filmmakers that had come from there. Um, and I, I kind of went down there and had an interview and uh, managed to kind of blag my way onto the course and uh, studied documentary then for like three years or documentary filmmaking. Uh, which was kind of a you know really good. I, mm -hmm. I, I was watch, I was watching films and talking about concepts of filmmaking that I'd never really come across before. Mm hmm. Okay. And and you led more into comedy. <laughs> yeah. So um, I I was I was kind of in this. I guess in my first year, I turned up really eager and I was really excited to make documentaries and I, I kind of I guess hadn't really thought much about whether I liked documentaries <laughs> so yeah. what I found was that there were a lot of um, and there were some lovely people on my course but there was a lot of kind of pretentious types on on, on the course at the same time um, I can see that. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> being too mean. And I kind of, again, I, I, I thought I was going there to find like a place where I would fit in, but it was actually, it felt like an, yeah, I felt like even more of an outsider because they were these kind of super arty films that were just, you know, experimental and, and you know, I could see people were trying to do creative things with them, but I just didn't enjoy them <laughs> on a fundamental mm-hmm. level. So um, I kind of like thought hard about the kind of stuff I was actually, I tried making kind of, you know, quite serious and thoughtful documentary and just varying degrees of success in, in terms of on a course level and on a project level within, within university. But um, I, I guess unless I was laughing or having a good time while making things, uh, I, I didn't enjoy it as much. Um, I, I started thinking about what, what, what could I make that would um, fit with the documentary side of things, but also with what I was passionate about. So started melding documentary and comedy together. And I had an opportunity where uh, a BBC producer came to the course and basically they had to do um, PSAs, like public safety announcements about um, the alcohol issue within within Wales, which mm-hmm. is still an issue. Binge drinking is still a massive problem. So they asked students just to come, to go out and make some film, to come up with some ideas and to come back. Uh, and because we were a documentary course, they thought, you know, we got this strong flavor of documentary. So I... A lot of people would make, they would do it stats-based films or some, somebody did a really um, intense and emotional interview with a, with a recovering alcoholic about kind of some of their darker moments. Um, but I was, I was determined to make something that would, would be kind of shocking but funny at the same time. So I uh, drove out to um, the middle of a town centre near where I lived and there's a, it doesn't happen so much now, they've relaxed the laws, but there used to be a, a thing called kick out, which is basically all the pubs closed at the same time because that was the law. And mm. all the drunk people poured out at the same time onto the streets and it was just absolute chaos. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I, I hid in my car and I filmed them from a distance, like just all this chaos and people, you know, drunk in the, like fighting and falling over. And it, you, you saw the spectrum of, every emotion happening playing out there on, on the street so your own zombie movie basically oh no i cut it as a nature film so <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> so that's I, funny <laughs> i had a friend from oxford who sounded like he had a posh english accent who sounded a bit like david attenborough in passing so i got him to write the script and i don't write the script i i had kind of uh, performed the script and we kind of developed it together and then Put it out and it was it, they, they liked it it was one of the five films that kind of went out on tv in the end but <laughs> 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 to blur everyone so no one could be recognized but um but that was kind of what i'm because i managed to pull that off then and again it went on and i got paid like a 25 pound i think for a broadcast license i've still got it because it was like the first time i ever made any money out of making films <laughs> so it was kind of it really that, that became the the kind of uh I suppose that was a kind of a turning point where I realized that, yeah, I could actually blend those two things and, and that would be a reasonable path for me to follow that. That's cool. The, yeah, because that, that would be a creative challenge. You take something that's very serious, make it funny. In general, like I, I often think of, like I like, like documentaries, but a lot of people that I talk to are just like, ah, they're boring and blah, blah, blah. And you, you kind of picture documentary filmmakers as being these self-serious people people um not 
necessarily doing it for laughs. Uh, but I, I, that's a, that's an interesting perspective you have. Yeah, and that kind of became the niche that I'd work on really was that if people wanted documentaries that were with people who were big characters or fun or, you know, had that kind of, they wanted it to be vibrant and warm, not necessarily like sad or um, challenging, then it was, it, it kind of became the, the, the niche that I would kind of start to work in then, which was good because I kind of felt more comfortable um, when I'm, when I'm having fun making films that's, that's when I kind of do my best work I, I feel so it, it was a I started selectively pigeonholing myself down that route but but it was fine it was it was working for me I, you know I was passionate in that in that realm mm -hmm. so did you have any specific creative influences at that point now that you've figured out your direction um I guess it's always been it's always been straight I tell you what I really did used to like and I used to watch a lot of was um and it's dated horribly. And now I kind of go, why did you like that at the time? Because it's kind of weird. It's, do you remember um, Tom Green when he had his show on like playing pranks on his parents and stuff? I do remember that show. <laughs> oh, but I used to, I just loved how it was kind of comedy and reality. But I felt sorry for his parents. But the same oh, like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I like it. There was something quite sadistic about how, how funny it was. Though, and he, I think he put a statue of them in the front garden. Uh, like, and, then, and like, I think there was a fountain coming out of his dad over his mother, and, and kind of, I don't know. I think, I think those kind of shows, I like, I like the stuff that was just being, it was kind of reality TV that was uh, just surreal comedy, meet, yeah, kind of clashing in that sense. Um, so I, I used to like stuff like that, but then I was kind of watching the more serious documentaries, and then things like Fahrenheit 9/11 um, was coming out, and. And those kind of like big cinema docs. So at the time, documentary was having a kind of a cinema renaissance in that sense. I think so. It was it was a, a good time to be kind of exploring that genre because it felt like uh, people were interested in in those and like supersize me. I remember going to see that in the cinema. You were getting these kind of like more, um, you know, kind of a real mix of of like feature length, uh, you know, standard. Uh, blockbuster hits and then also these feature length documentaries in, in the cinema at the same time which I'd never really remembered happening before yeah. um, as a kid or anything so it was quite it was quite cool to be in that space and be like um, at least trying to emulate what they were doing and everything um, and then my, my graduation film was uh, uh, what happened is somebody had told me that somebody at the BBC there was a new commissioner uh, and, and they were the person who essentially uh, decided what TV shows would be made and how much money they would have, was uh, had just taken over a channel called BBC Three, which was a channeling that people under the age of 30 in the UK, and the, the channel doesn't exist. It's now like an online channel. They, they kind of mothballed this slightly. And they were looking for, they'd never been able to cover the topic of religion in a, in a particularly, uh, uh, in a way they were happy with, I guess. And they said, oh, if any of you can come up with any ideas that looks at religion and can fit that demographic, then, uh, you know, just it, you, you might get a, an opportunity to, to actually make something for, for the BBC um, that was like um, a genuine TV show or documentary. So um, I basically uh, came up with the idea where I was going to sell my soul to anyone willing to pay for it 
to pay off my student debt because it was like I was leaving university. It was my graduation film um, mm -hmm. and made this kind of slightly funny, sli playing a slightly exaggerated version of myself, um, but then interviewing religious people and looking at what the soul is and, and you know, trying, trying to do something that was funny, but also trying to explore something at the same time mm -hmm. um, and, and seeing if somebody was actually willing to pay for it. And um, But then it, 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 it kind of... <laughs> I suppose it's, it's, it's like uh, any student film you make, you kind of look back at it and, and there's good things and bad things about it and you criticize it and compare it to, to, to kind of where you are now, I guess. But um, it was fine. It was okay, I guess. I passed. So that was the main thing. But the, uh, the, the commissioner was interested in it and I managed to, um, before I'd even graduated, I'd, I'd managed to get a position, like a junior position at the BBC on a temporary contract. Um, uh, so I was finishing my graduation film in the evening and working at the BBC in, in Cardiff in South Wales in, in the day, um, which was kind of an amazing um, opportunity. I never even thought it would happen that fast. I thought I'd be uh, one of the you know people sending TVs and trying to find my way in somehow for a few years. But um, it was just a, an incredible luck at the time. And um, but the, I, I guess I, I imagined that to be working at the BBC would be like the thing that I'd always want. And then within a year, um, I, I'd had enough and I'd left. So <laughs> I didn't want to get to the contract. So it's, it's funny how you kind of, uh, you aim for something and then when you actually arrive there, it's, it's completely different from what you imagine. Yeah, it's that whole, uh, the, the real work experience or real education almost starts once you start, uh, start actually working and, and see what it's like. Was it just rigid in that environment or just other things you can't really talk about? No, I, I, I guess, I mean, it's changed so much because this was still like more than 10 years ago. But um, I had been trained in university to be, to be a self-shooting director. So I would shoot, I would edit, I would do every role. But it, the BBC at the time still had the, the old school kind of model of you know, you're a camera person or a sound person or you're a director or you're a producer, you know, which, which I kind of think is, is sad that that doesn't, re it, it doesn't happen as, as much anymore because, you know, there was, at the time, I was just glad that I was there and I was getting these opportunities and I was cheaper and I could do everything. So it made sense mm -hmm. for me to be there. But there's kind of a loss of real expertise in a specific field and there's times when, a lot of filmmakers now who do that, where they do everything, are just spinning plates and you can't give the amount of creative energy to all of those roles as four or five people could necessarily. So um, at the time, things were changing and they were moving towards that. Um, so I guess I was eyed suspiciously <laughs> and me and my, my friend who was there at the time as well, we had the same skill set. We were both kind of, there were a lot of people who um, didn't want us there. But as much as they were, they could see the industry was changing, and we were kind of part of that wave of, of people doing that. Um, and at the time, maybe I was a bit more gung ho about it, and you know, we had to shake things up. But looking back now, you go, you know what? If you've got a team, a really skilled team who specialise in all those fields, you know, you can achieve amazing things. And that is probably not a setup that we should lose uh, or cast away because uh, it is harder to do good work when pressure is put on you when you, you end up, you know, making mistakes because you can't consider all those different angles at the same time. It's just not physically and mentally possible, I guess. Yeah, so, true. yeah um, and then uh, also it was very, 
it was an institution. It was very British, very rigid. It was a real peck and order, a real sense of authority and class. The class system was was quite heavily ingrained in, in it, and uh, I, and because I had like a Valley's Welsh accent as well. Every time I went to London with meetings and stuff, you'd get a raised eyebrow that I kind of got a bit fed up with, assuming that oh wow, you're from you're from South Wales, you know, there's a surprise and you, you didn't go to Oxford kind of approach. <laughs> kind of, you know, you just get bored of that. And then, um, uh, so um, me and a friend, we, we, we quit and we thought, let's just make videos for the internet because um, that's going to hopefully be a thing that we could make money doing because we were still scratching our heads going, how do you make money off, off YouTube? Or um, when we started speaking to businesses that maybe wanted to do uh, like short films or documentaries and, and making that kind of work. But at the same time, then we, um, I was about 22 at the time. Uh, I'd made a, a pilot uh, called uh, Rod Gilbert's Teen Tribes, which was this weird concept about a comedian in his 40s hanging out with, um, remember Emo Kid? Mm, no, I don't actually. It's kind of like, a, I think they were in America too. It was just this fashion trend of like, um, like dark, dark hair. Oh, right. and, Emos. Yeah, yeah, okay. Emos. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I was trying to, trying to picture them in my head. I think everyone's moved on already. So, yeah. <laughs> kind of, and he, it, was, it was him kind of, just, it was the comedian, Rod Gilbert, who's a British, uh, a Welsh comedian and kind of known in the UK. Um, just spending some time with some emo kids to try and find out what, what they were all about. And it was a kind of a weird show and it didn't quite work. We had fun making it because he was a comedian and the kids we were with quite funny. But with him, we then thought about, well, that wasn't the right idea. It was kind of an idea that was thrust upon us and we were kind of forced to make it work. Whereas what if we just came up with a, an idea based on the strengths of what we learned about working together on that last uh, last project? And we came up with a show called Rod Gilbert's Work Experience, which was him basically just trying other people's jobs for a few days and then what would happen is we would just, uh, myself and Nathan, the other the other producer director, we would uh, go to, um, for instance, uh, he we had him join the army for one episode, so he had no idea what was happening, and we'd already set up a series of tests and trials and like a big test at the end for him to overcome, and then just basically just tortured him or got the army to torture him for. How did for a you few get days. them to go along with that? <laughs> don't know but, but um, and, and we well we got commissioned for a first series so we made that series the bbc and i think the reason we did get them to do that was because that it was a bbc show um, gotcha. so uh, and then you know the, that i don't know how they trust it was like 22 year olds kind of <laughs> i don't know i think we took someone older than us with us to the meeting <laughs> kind yeah, this of is thing. like these idiots <laughs> want to do what <laughs> so we did that and we had him be like a butler for a lord. We had him. Uh, he, the, we had him be a fighter pilot. Somehow we managed to convince the RAF to let him fly a fighter jet. <laughs> so, um, he was a, a, a garbage collector. He was a, uh, a, a teacher. Uh, we had him be a drag artist. It was so we this, this, and this show I, I ended up like making for like ten years. We did like eight seasons to the show. It became like a. The first season we had like 150,000 people tune in, but by the end we were like two million in the UK. Wow. Um, and it's um, 
it's, it's one of those shows that we made a, we made like 30 episodes, which is a lot for a UK TV show when you only do four episodes per season. So um, it's now one of those shows that's been infinitely repeated on on like some some of the smaller digital digital channels. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that show um, it worked it worked, and we managed to build a, a really kind of vibrant audience around it. And it was kind of my bread and butter for, for a good decade. Um, and around that then I got to do lots of other interesting work um, with like um, well we, we used to make some documentaries for Aston Martin for the, wow. the, the car company we used to, we used to go to we, well, we did we did one record in um, uh, a, a Grand Prix circuit in the south of France I was quite quite weird but that was quite a good experience and then we went to we did two 24-hour endurance races at the Nürburgring so we just filmed the car like would it you know a documentary about the car and the team who were like keeping the car on the road as it was going around this crazy track in Germany and then um uh did like a few cinema adverts tv adverts around that um and then uh, also fell into to radio as well, doing radio comedy, a lot of scripted radio comedy, but also um, kind of hybrid documentary again <laughs> uh, with a show called The Unexplainers that became a, a, a podcast that was um, quite successful. We, we were kind of really lucky. We managed to uh, get started in about 2015, 2016, and the show was all about the... Um, the show, the premise of the show is that this two comedians, one of them believes in UFOs, aliens, Bigfoot, the other one doesn't. And uh, mm -hmm. we basically had like a road trip format. They were going around trying to solve different kind of mysteries. But what we kind of tapped into was making, I, I've always loved that world. I've always been obsessed with the X-Files and I, I love all, all, all those topics. Not because I necessarily believe them. I just love the idea of complete, alternative um perspectives some people have on what reality is and what's actually going on in the world <laughs> i just love some of the creativity behind some of it how people explain the the world around them um in ways that in some ways make no sense but in other ways you kind of um yeah i just think it's really creative so i'd always been into that so we kind of made fun of that world but in a kind of loving insider way and it kind of struck a chord with other people who kind of liked listening to podcasts about Bigfoot but didn't necessarily believe in Bigfoot and thought people mm. who talked about Bigfoot all the time were quite funny so we we kind of uh, built that audience up um, uh, and and it became a tv show then we, we we pitched it as hey this is a successful podcast so give us a tv show um uh so yeah it was kind of going kind to of spiral out of control <laughs> from that first tv series really that's that's funny i used to so I I like used to like watching those things too, and then my brother and I would grow up. We, I lived in Bermuda, and yeah. we watched these Bermuda Triangle documentaries that came on, and we'd be <laughs> like, <laughs> we're like, whoa! I'm in the Bermuda Triangle right now as I'm watching this thing that's telling me the Bermuda Triangle is supposed to suck me up, and uh, <laughs> it was always fun to see what they had to say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was I, I always kind of love the, the the kind of how lowbrow a lot of the TV shows about these topics are that are made. So like every time you kind of see a show about UFOs or Bigfoot, it's always done in the most kind of low budget, kind of over the top voiceover <laughs> kind of way. And 
it, it just felt like if it's such a, a fun world to kind of make fun of. And if you kind of love those topics and you kind of obsess over those topics, you can have so much fun with them to kind of uh, pull them apart. And especially because it seems like with the, the, the it's now exploded into like uh, way more than just a fun, like look at conspiracy theories in a sense. There's, some people now are choosing alternative realities from from those kind of early videos on YouTube and things in terms of like the flat earth movement is growing and yeah. it's bizarre how it's kind of it's getting slightly more extreme in nothing. Yeah. It, that that there is that it's it's amazing to me. Like people will believe anything and you cannot tell them otherwise. Um, no, no. And that's the thing, it's not even about um logic anymore no it's, it's, it's about faith and belief you know it's, it's got nothing to do with facts at all is is in the realm of well i just believe it it's, i genuinely you know and um i kind of um i remember we did a uh, an episode where we interviewed a lady and she believes in she i mean in europe some places like fairies are still a strong part of local folklore and belief and she she was like i believe in fairies i see them all the time you know, they're kind of um, they're these incredible beings of light that I experience sometimes. And we were like, well, what do you think the science is behind that? And she was like, well, we they, they, they exist in pocket dimensions and they appear to us when, when they feel they want to. Jeez. So, so we then went, I don't know how, um, much like they convinced the army to let us set, just film with them and watch them torture a comedian, convinced somebody from CERN at the Hadron Collider who's studying pocket dimensions to do an interview with us about. Um, and it was the weirdest, they said it was the weirdest interview they've ever done because you were trying to work out whether their research could prove the existence of fairy. <laughs> but it was, you know, it was one of those uh, fun experiences that are, uh, it's not straightforward at all, but I, when you're having those weird conversations, it's, uh, to, me, to me, that's like, um, that's gold for me. So. Yeah. So how how in the hell do you get paid to do this weird shit? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know at all. But um, I, I did a lot. I did a lot. I've done my fair share of boring corporate work, um, okay. training videos, all that kind of stuff as well. But the TV work, I've been lucky to get kind of interest in TV work. Um, and uh, I only I, I stepped away from both those shows when I moved to Canada because we just wanted me and my wife. We wanted to kind of have a different like lifestyle change and an adventure. And I'm, I'm mainly working on commercial work now, so I'm not doing as much weird stuff since I moved here. But um, I'm sure I'll find my way. I'll find a way of falling back in back into it eventually. Mm -hmm. And I've been, especially I'm doing because I'm doing more podcasting. I'm, I'm doing more um, work and and some production stuff for for kind of podcasts that I suppose you could class as weird. Um, mm -hmm. But but. I guess I think I think it's I think the main reason I, I kind of did find work doing that kind of stuff is that um, whereas whereas uh, um, I I I guess I, I I must be capable of of making shows and putting them out there and having them kind of produced and, and broadcast and everything, but then I guess as as I've kind of like proven myself and built a reputation. Because that's I, because I'm passionate about slightly more fringe, weird stuff. I guess maybe I've tried to force that into into the agenda <laughs> and, and really, you know, use people's trust and gone. Oh, seriously, this will be a good show. It'll work. And and they've given me a, a punt because that's what I've been 
trying to the direction I've been trying to take it, I guess. Um, mm. But um, maybe, or maybe, maybe I was just uh, the commissioners when I pitched those ideas, they've just been feeling like they, uh, they're a bit more experimental, or they don't like their job anymore, and they just give me a try. So. Right. And okay. And so, on another note, you've won a BAFTA. That's yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's not. It's, it's a. I'll lay on a little secret. It's a Welsh BAFTA, so it's, oh. not, like a, it's not like a proper real London one. It's a, it's a Welsh one. <laughs> but um, but no, it, was, it was for um, it was for Rod Gilbert's work experience, the the, the show, um, which was cool. And we've got a few like Celtic Media Awards for it and and everything. But those kind of awards and and things are it's really nice to be to be recognised by peers within the industry. But at the same time, the it was it was one of those weird things where you kind of um, I, I guess you don't really, if you I've never really um, thought about those things. I was just quite happy that I was getting paid to make stuff that I was enjoying making in that sense. And and then when you do get those, you go oh maybe people take me more seriously than I thought I was taking myself seriously. And then you kind of go from there. But also like the the audience, it, you kind of feel like the audience is always the best way to get your feedback and, and the audience uh, figures, although they can, can be flawed sometimes, the system that they, they use to record them, you know, when you get positive feedback on social media and stuff like that, um, in some ways that, that, that can feel more um, directly rewarding when someone personally reaches out because of, of a show that you've done um, or work that you've put out there. But, um, but yeah, it, it's kind of... I've always found awards weird because I always kind of feel like a complete fraud and get imposter syndrome. So, okay. yeah. <laughs> you know, you kind of, you, you never go, okay, great. But I'm sure the other stuff was really good. Do you want to have a look, a look at it again? <laughs> so, right. Like... right. Yeah. I can imagine. Like, I, for sure. I, I always feel that way too. When I get contacted or get some kind of acknowledgement, it's like, I really don't feel like I've done anything yet though. So this is a very weird, feeling yeah yeah and you kind of go it, it makes me wonder if got, maybe i need to try a bit harder because if people like <laughs> because otherwise the if i've got this award now I, I i'm always terrified of relaxing and letting my guard down and going and, and convincing myself that i'm going yeah, that oh you could do this you know people people are people are giving you awards or whatever and, and you're able to do this but in my head, I'm always going, no, that means you need to work harder because if you convince yourself that you're, um, that you, that you're, you're, you've made it and that you're good, that's when you get bad and that's when you get, you get not very good at what you're doing and you need to stay in that mindset of always being terrified that everything's going to be terrible because then you make good stuff. So. Uh, the creative. It's... Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is one of the reasons, you know, from a career point of view, um, coming to Canada was great because um, I kind of built a reputation in the UK and having done 10 seasons of the same show I was kind of in that position where um, uh, I was kind of worried I was like slip, slipping into some kind of like autopilot where you're making the same stuff out for the same people and then coming to Canada was great because I had to suddenly prove myself again from scratch and build an entire new network and new reputation from scratch and to be like 35 and having to to do that again is 
it's terrifying, but at the same time, it kind of completely revitalizes your creativity in that sense. Yeah. So why why um, Nova Scotia and not say Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver? Uh, I, I, do you know what I think is we we didn't. I think if I moved to Toronto or Vancouver, I may as well have just moved to London because to me, I, I kind of as long as much as those cities have got their own individual characters, the lifestyle of of traffic and density of people and everything I find similar. Mm. Whereas there was something about Nova Scotia where um, there was an intense friendliness and welcoming, like uh, welcome feeling from a lot of people I, I met, but also it's got that strong Scottish, Irish, Celtic kind of culture uh, to it that is familiar as like a Welsh person who grew up in like, you know, the, the I'd say the little fishing communities have got a similar ethos to kind of the slightly kind of rusty mining communities that I grew up in. So it kind of is a, there's a familiarity on that basis that, that we kind of liked. There's just, you know, that strong sense of community and, and civic kind of duty and, um, it's quite relaxed and, and the pace is quite good. So yeah, it was, it was all the, all those reasons, but also then just the, the beauty of the Nova Scotia was just the beaches and uh, the ocean and the lakes. And we live in the middle of the forest and like get coyotes and bears and all this amazing stuff that just blows our minds. Uh, and I think well, even if I've been here for 20 years, it'll still blow my mind every time I see a deer walk right past my car. Um, yeah. I never get bored of that. <laughs> I've been here for 19 years now, and I'm still blown away every time I see a deer or anything, any kind of wildlife. And it's like, whoa, I saw this this morning. And my wife's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I, I saw a porcupine, and like me and my dog ran up to it. It goes, there's a porcupine. And yeah. then like pulled it back and raised the spines, and we just ran the other way. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. Um, so if there's one piece of advice you would give any kind of aspiring artist, I don't even like that word aspiring. I'll just say artist, creative, whatever you want to call them. What would that be? Um, I guess is like find, find what you like making. Don't, don't kind of look at trends and look at what seems to be like going on in the marketplace and uh, in terms of photography styles or you know drawing or art find what you like making and then try and make everybody else around you go along with it <laughs> because because if you don't then you'll only ever do what other people want you to do or what you think you should be doing but if you can find out what you find and identify what you love doing and what you're really passionate about and then just do it and then uh, hopefully other people will be interested and come along for the ride and supporting you, then you'll be in a much stronger position because you can become a real, not an authority, but you have that confidence of knowing that you're passionate enough to really care what you're doing and, and to, to really specialize in it and uh, kind of thrive in that space. So you'll never be short on energy to kind of drive a project through. You'll never be short on creativity to experiment because you're in a place where you know that you can kind of take control of the situation or you can just really run with it and, and do your own thing. Um, mm. And that might not always work, <laughs> but it is worth, it's worth a shot. It's worth trying to kind of uh, 
drive the agenda rather than follow it, I, I believe. That's true because this path seems easy and fun sometimes to the outside, but when you're compromising more, sometimes it can make it miserable. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've compromised loads, especially like doing, like, you know, like I was describing dry corporate work. You just yeah. go, but then you kind of don't get emotionally attached to that kind of work. It, mm. but, you know, but when you do get, sink your teeth into those projects that means that you you, do, you don't want to compromise that because if you if you know that in your head it can be something good and different and interesting and of value then uh you you, you kind of you, you do want to really push to try and achieve that um within reason you know mm-hmm. don't make people cry or anything <laughs> you know what I mean? you kind of got to make it work but at the same time you you want it to be um, I, I do think that you know, it's important to have influences and to have some really strong influences from um, kind of people who inspire you. But I think that it's so easy to find influences and to, to find styles and trends with like social media and everything. They, they, you know, there's a there's a lot of a lot of uh, like photography styles you can kind of fall down that rabbit hole or um, how people edit video, for instance. There's like you know, there's there's uh, there's a really specific style or several styles you do see, but how can you then come subvert that and do that differently to, to stand out? That's, that's the space that has always interested me. Um, it's not necessarily doing what everybody else is doing, but trying to find a way to do it slightly differently or to look back on the people of, of how they're doing it and then subverting that in, in a sense. And sometimes I fail spectacularly and nobody knows what I'm trying to do. <laughs> Mm-hmm. me, and other times it, it can work. Sometimes, and it, it's definitely worth trying. I could be off base here, but I I partly feel like the speed in which social media has allowed us to share our art and our different styles of creating things, it has taken away some of the integrity that some of us. Like I remember when I first started out, like I didn't want to be caught dead stealing someone else's drawing style, whatever that means. Or I had this strict, like, this is mine. This is, I'm moving my own path. Whereas now it seems like a lot of people are very happy to go on Instagram and see a style that they like and run with it. Yeah. 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 I, I think so too. I think like the whole, and and that's the, I guess maybe that's the core of what, um, maybe the point I was getting at is that kind of thing of being original, not necessarily like subscribing to just reposting and, and then copying other, other, whatever else is doing, trying to kind of find some originality. And then you find that the people who are doing really original stuff are the ones who are getting noticed and are the ones who are kind of creating waves. The, mm-hmm. it's, it's so easy to, to kind of, uh, and you do doubt yourself sometimes. You wonder whether subconsciously, whether you've, you're absorbing all these styles and then just, forgetting about them and three weeks later you're, you're actually reproducing something you might have seen and forgotten about and you know you are influenced by things in that sense but to try and make a conscious decision to, to kind of try and do something that nobody else is doing is admirable I think. Yeah and I would say as a reminder to the people who are listening is that if you're doing that not always people aren't always going to get it like we said they're just sometimes you're going to do something new and people are like what the hell is that 
and it may take a couple of years before it catches on. Uh, but it's that perseverance that will end up paying off rather than trying to steal the thunder of someone else or ride on their coattails um, by jacking their styles. So yeah, 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 exactly. What's next for you? Is there anything you, you want to plug or promote? Yeah, well, um, uh, my, most of my video work and my show reel where you can see some of the projects I was talking about is, um, you can, you can check out, I've got a site called reeseedits.com, which is basically the site for, for most of the edit work that I'm doing at the moment. Um, I recently made a, 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 well, I edited a documentary for CBC called Here Here, which is about um, the gospel music in North Preston in Nova Scotia um, with, a, with a, a director and a, a director called Daniel and a, a producer called Anne, who were um, really good uh, to, to kind of work with, and they're both based in Nova Scotia as well. And I think I think it might it might be on the the CBC Gem app. It can be watched on. Um, and I also have the podcast consultancy, which is Podstarter.io, um, with um, and our podcast will be launching soon, which features you as well. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Yes, indeed. Love it. And um, oh, uh, how can people, if people want to work with you, how do they, how do they find you? I think on my website, my phone number's on there, my email's on there. Um, I think my house might be on the drop pin map as well. I don't know if I moved it or not. Somebody told me <laughs> I shouldn't have my house. But, um, or you can, I'm usually on Instagram uh, at resedit, so I tend to be quite active on there. And I'm also really active on, on LinkedIn as well. Um, I, I like making fun of, um, thought leadership, which seems to be a, a thing in the kind of the corporate world at the moment. So I, I, I post my own fake inspirational quotes that don't make any sense usually. So. Okay. <laughs> I would love to see one of these people who steal things repost it in uh, sincerity. So that's, that's my dream is that somebody actually shares it without reading it. So. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. <laughs> All right, uh, Reese, thank you very much. And um, oh, did you you didn't say what the, the URL was? I'll post it in the show notes. But uh, what's your uh, resetits.com Resetits. podstarter.io? Okay, cool. All right, cool. thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. That's awesome. Thank you so much for listening to the Art Pays Me podcast. Thank you to Lange Beats for the theme music. If you got anything out of this show, please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. The more you do this, the more reach the podcast gets, and the more artists I can help learn to make a living at what they love. If you want to know more about what I do, hit me up at artpaysme.com or at artpaysme on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest. See y'all next time.